Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. Today my guest is Michael Abelman. Michael is a farmer, author, photographer, and urban and local food systems advocate. Michael has been farming organically since the early 1970s and is considered one of the pioneers of the organic farming and urban agriculture movements. He is a frequent lecturer to audiences all over the world and winner of numerous awards for his work. He's the founder of the Center for Urban Agriculture at Fairview Gardens, co-founder and director of Soul Food Street Farms, and founder and director of the Center for Arts, Ecology, and Agriculture, based at his family home and farm on Salt Spring Island in British Columbia. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Abelman. Uh, Michael, I'm, I'm interested. How, how would you describe yourself? Because you are uh, an urban farmer. You are uh, an activist. You're an author. What, tell me a little bit about what you do. You know, I if I were to uh, try to boil down what I do, which is a little tricky, I, you know, I work as a farmer. That's my daily occupation. Uh, you know, our family has a 120-acre farm on an island off the coast of British Columbia. Uh, but I also use farming and food uh, as a form of um, uh, so of uh, activism, social activism. Um, so I run a, a fairly large project in the city of Vancouver, which employs uh, about 30 people who are dealing with long-term addiction, mental illness, material poverty. And uh, believe it or not, on four acres of parking lots, we've developed an innovative system where we are producing 25 tons of food annually, and all with the hands of folks who not only never farmed, but many of whom never held a job for you know two or three weeks, let alone uh, some of them have been with us for uh, eight, nine years now. Um, and I also write a, do some writing about food and agriculture, and and uh, uh, have for you know well, quite a number of years. I guess there's now four books out and one in the works. <laughs> so let's let, let's begin at the beginning a little bit. So. Uh, where are you from? Tell me a little bit about your your upbringing and, and how the, how the person that you are came to develop into the the work that you do. Yeah, it's interesting. I grew up in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, Delaware uh, uh, being the home of the Dupont Company and fifty five thousand other uh, international corporations uh, due to its uh, favorable tax laws. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, Dupont and Hercules and a bunch of those other chemical companies are actually based there. And that was kind of the backdrop in, in some ways of my upbringing. Uh, my, my father was probably one of the few that did not work for DuPont. Uh, you know, I grew up in a, uh, uh, you know, kind of peri-urban environment. My, my father and grandfather and great-grandfather were all uh, from rural Delaware, from um, Sussex County. They had farms there. So I spent my summers uh, traveling with my grandfather to see his farm friends and experiencing uh, the foods that they were growing and, you know, and seeing that country. But my day-to-day life was in uh, a fairly urbanized situation. You know, I left home when I was 16, not for any particular reason, except that I was just ready to get on with my life. You know, I figured, um, you know, 12 years of of public school education was a little much, and I was ready to get on with my life, you know. I left home. It was the, you know, it was what Vietnam War had, it was just ending, I think. Um, uh, went on to live uh, with a, a kind of a community of photographers in, um, in Kentucky. 
very informative time. I was very interested in the visual arts. I got a scholarship to the San Francisco Art Institute, spent about a year or two there, realized that I was not interested in sitting around in little groups, <laughs> critiquing each other's work as if it was the most important thing on the planet. And I didn't really have anything to say. I was, you know, if you, if you have uh, an interest in the visual arts or any creative endeavor, I think to some degree you have to have a story to tell or, you know, and I was too young for that. So I wanted to get out and, and kind of experience life. So I ended up traveling, working on farms and eventually culminating in a uh, six year stint at uh, a, an agrarian commune here in California, which became very well known. We had uh, 4,000 acres, four different parcels. We were the largest producers of organic food in the country at the time. It was called Sunburst Farms. Um, it was a so-called spiritual community. So we were, um, the, the founder was a disciple of uh, Yogananda, had actually lived and worked with Yogananda when he was alive, who was the, one of the first East Indians to bring uh, that tradition to the West. But we were kind of this strange mix of... Um, Christian mysticism, uh, Native American, <laughs> East Indian, you know, uh, with a strong meditation tradition. And uh, we were, you know, all held everything in common. We were celibate, <laughs> or at least I thought everybody was celibate. Uh, and um, but what was powerful for me was, you know, and where I derived my inspiration and my grounding and my passion was that within uh, three months of living in that community, uh, I was given the responsibility of managing the 100-acre pear and apple orchard that was located in um, uh, the Cuyamba Valley, which is a high desert valley east of Ojai. You know? And uh, here I was at the age of 18, having never managed anything, uh, knowing nothing about agriculture, directing a crew of about 40 people, most of whom were older than I was. Um, the orchard hadn't been pruned for 15 years, so you couldn't even see the alleys down the middles of the trees. I had a 1930s copy of a book called Modern Fruit Science, which was a great book. The journal from the guy who ran the place uh, the year before and gave up in frustration. And a copy of uh, Goethe's famous quote, uh, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Wow. Attached to the, the uh, door of my 20-foot unheated trailer, you know. And that actually has um, kind of been my uh, credo, if you will. For I still have that pasted on the walls of my house, you know. And so, you know, what was incredible about that is that, you know, I... Um, went to work every day with 40 of my friends. We ate our lunch together under the shade of those trees. We tried out our latest theories and philosophies on, on each other. We speculated on the fate of the earth. Um, it was, uh, uh, instead of feeling like I'd been involved with some mind-numbing drudgery, because we're, you, know, you could be pruning for four months straight or thinning fruit for two months, harvesting for three months, you know. But I felt like I had attended an all-day party every day. You know, the work got done; those trees thrived, and that fruit gained a reputation around the country. You know, while the conditions were amazing—the cold nights and hot days, which brought up the sugar of the fruit—it was the passion of that group of people, the energy they felt in working with each other, the connection to that land that really infused that fruit with its, you know, its goodness. 
and it was the most powerful um, primary experience for me in farming. Uh, it really taught me that you know farming is more than uh, good technique and healthy soil. It's about the energy of the people you work with. It's about community, you know. So this this sounds like this was the early to mid seventies. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. What was your introduction to the Esalen Institute? Was was that the time that you made your first connection? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> even before that experience, I used to um, get dropped off, uh, either hitchhiking or a friend was driving through here across the road and hike up into the mountains here, you know. Um, and um, and then uh, I think I had left that community. I was driving with my wife, Donna, who I met in the community. Uh, we had a 1971 Volkswagen van, and uh, we were making our way north through Big Sur. And we blew a fan belt, which on an air-cooled engine is kind of important, you know. And so the the vehicle rolled to a stop at the top of the driveway, literally. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I wandered down the hill because I needed a phone. You know, I mean, there was there were certainly no cell phones then. And uh, when I got down to the bottom of the hill, I was my, had my eyes, you know, open. I was like, wow, what the hell is this, you know? And then I got to know Steve Beck. Um, Steve and I are good friends to this day, you know, um, and uh, Steve would invite me to come here for periods of time to, um, uh, in a consulting capacity, although I, I still say to this day that I think he knew more than I did, you know. And I um, would spend my days here, you know, working with the farm and garden, working with Steve, um, providing whatever insight I could uh, in terms of the, the uh, agriculture here. What was the farm and garden like? What was the scope of it in those days? Steve had developed the, uh, the, the scale was pretty similar to what we see today at that time. Uh, and I, Steve had been pretty much the one had, who had developed that out. There was a point when Dick Price uh, and Steve and I got our heads together and decided to put an orchard uh, on the five acres of land that Esalen owned across from South Coast. I don't know if Esalen still owns that land. Probably not. I think it's gone to the land trust or something like that. And I spent a number of months researching uh, what I thought might work there because we, were, we realized there was the potential to produce a lot more food for the kitchen. Uh, and that land was available. It was gently sloping. And so um, Dick and I walked through there a number of times. I came up with a plan we came up with a budget and we did a lot of, you know, uh, created a map. Uh, we were ready to launch and then he died. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, st of course, stayed involved uh, here and have through the various successions of uh, farm and garden managers and directors and, and have, uh, you know, had, the, you know, the unique perspective of seeing things from uh, over time, which I think is really uh, pretty awesome, you know. Um, it's, you know, you don't have the answers, but you can see the cycles. So tell me about where your journey led you after you kind of finished at the this agrarian commune. Did you say it was called Sunburst? Yeah, it's called Sunburst Farms, uh, also known as the Brotherhood of the Sun. <laughs> uh, yeah, I left that community. I, um, uh, my first wife and I, Donna, went to work for Michael Douglas for a short period of time, the actor, you know. And he had a 12-acre piece of land above Santa Barbara, which I helped him develop. And 
And our son, our eldest son, Aaron, was born in the basement of his house. <laughs> I delivered him. We um, left there and moved to British Columbia for a period of time to the interior. We worked on a um, rather large uh, sheep ranch up in BC, in the interior of BC. Came back. Um, I heard about a place that I had done some grafting for, a farm in uh, north of Santa Barbara in Goleta called Fairview Gardens, which was one of the kind of the progenitors of the organic movement, one of the early places where uh, people were looking to for guidance and as a model. And the guy running that place had asked me to graft a bunch of orange trees to a different variety, which I did. About a year later, I heard he was leaving. I came and uh, ended up taking over that project, and I stayed there for 25 years. <laughs> and uh, uh, raised Aaron there. Um, that became... Um, quite an amazing project. We would have thousands of people coming through there every year for various workshops and programs. Uh, we um, were growing uh, about 100 different fruits and vegetables. We were supplying food to about 500 families in the, in the region. We were demonstrating some really innovative stuff that was at that time kind of new. It was an exciting time. We had a lot of luminaries from around the country and the world that would come and spend time with us. We ran, you know, lectures and music events and, you know, and dinners and, you know. So it was it was an exciting time. It was kind of another very formative experience for me because it, it kind of built that side of me that wanted to teach and share the knowledge that I was accumulating. But what was the state of organic farming at, at that time? I mean, had the the monocropping uh, model of, of large-scale agricultural pretty much taken taken hold? Yeah, no, it was in those days, uh, I like to say that I probably knew, uh, personally knew just about everyone in the country who was, um, in the early days of this, who was doing anything in regards to organic farming. It was, the movement was still quite uh, new. Well, new being the, the, the reemergence of the movement was new. It's certainly nothing new about uh, what we do. We have just rediscovered something very ancient, you know, and are kind of melding it with some modern techniques. But, um, but those who were kind of reinventing and uh, rethinking agriculture in a more sustainable way, there, was, there weren't very many of them. And we knew each other. And um, uh, I had the, the uh, uh, blessing of being able to see this thing kind of grow from that point to where I, you know, there's, I wouldn't know even a tiny fraction of what's going on now, you know. That was incredible. I mean, we did have, in those days, we, you know, we started having some of the big conferences. I remember the, I think I was probably at the first EcoFarm conference, which was held at, um, uh, at a YWCA camp north of Santa Cruz uh, called La Honda, I believe it was, you know. They were exciting times because uh, the language we were using, the ideas that we were putting forth, the models that we were creating uh, were so uh, completely different than where the dominant system had been going. And uh, people were uh, either skeptical or uh, laughed at us, or there were a few who really took notice. You know? And from that, from those early, very shaky beginnings, we have built a rather remarkable movement. And, and that's, that's pretty exciting, you know. Yeah. I mean, the thing to remember, though, is that, you know, what we're doing, I mean, the only new thing that we 
are experiencing is what has occurred really in the last, since World War I and World War II, you know, uh, which is really where the technology for um, uh, large-scale and uh, techno-chemical industrial agriculture has evolved out of, you know. So, you know, that's only been, what, 75 years, 80 years? I don't know, 100 years? No, 75 years? I'm, my, my chronology is... That's not a very long time in the broader scheme of things, you know. I mean, you're looking at a, roughly a 7,000-year tradition uh, for most of that time um, with some pretty uh, sensible, sustainable methods. And then all of a sudden a dramatic and quite drastic shift, you know, which has, has had a pretty profound effect in many respects, you know, socially, politically, personal health-wise, you know. So we're kind of um, now just beginning to see um, the work that we started 40-some, 50 years ago uh, uh, taking root uh, in creating a bit of a shift, but it's still fractional. It's still tiny relative to the broader system, you know. We're still only a few percentage points, which is amazing considering, you know, how long we've been doing this. We, we, have, we have every product, every commodity, every fruit, every vegetable, every possible agricultural product is being produced on every scale with really good methods. So we have the models. It's not like this is limited to one scale or one product, you know. And yet um, the industrial system is so entrenched and there's so much uh, deep money behind it that we have not seen the kind of wholesale shift we would have expected at this point. So. Yeah. I mean, for, for someone like me, it feels like organic food is is everywhere, you know, and I, I almost feel like I can't even trust all the, the labeling that goes on because I go to a place like like a Costco or, or whatever, and they've got this prepackaged food that has the organic stamp on it. I don't know. What, what's your thought about the state of um, of the labeling and the, the certification processes these days? Well, you know, I was pretty outspoken when I was farming here in California um, when there, there were a group of people who were pushing very hard to have um, the U.S. federal government pass legis national legislation. I felt that having the USDA monitoring organic was kind of like having the fox guarding the chicken coop because historically they have done nothing but enable uh, the very system that we're trying to shift, you know. And so I was, I had trouble with it. I had uh, deep concerns about the certification programs that were evolving uh, because they essentially uh, were a one-size-fits-all and, and they penalized the smaller growers with just unbelievable amounts of paperwork and inspections and costs. Some of that has been resolved and improved. And I think looking back, uh, some of the very concerns that a few of us, I was not certainly not the only one, uh, had um, when this legislation was being pushed through have come to pass. We are seeing, for example, uh, uh, a lot of crazy things being allowed under the label of organic that we just don't agree with, you know. And so, Like what, Michael? Well, like being able to grow in soilless mediums, you know. That's really, to us, that's... Uh, that is that crosses a, a almost a spiritual line for those of us who who uh, work on the land. It is the soil, and only the soil that uh, is the foundation for this movement. In fact, the foundation for our uh, everyone's lives. You know, we are we are every one of us, whether we farm or not, are inextricably tied to that thin layer that covers 
the planet. It's the placenta. And so to think that we're going to somehow um, make food that is whole and complete uh, in, uh, you know, in soilless mediums. I, I, what is a soilless medium? Like hydroponic? Yeah, hydroponics and other systems that do not require, you know, the living soil, you know. There was a big fight over this recently, and, um, uh, and it was approved. And so we're seeing the, the dilution. Uh, that's just one example. The dilution of what the word means. And, and my position is that um, every movement, to some degree, reaches a point where it to, has to reinvent itself, has to create new language to describe what it does, you know. And I think some of that has been happening. I think people are not, some people are not using the word organic anymore, even though they may be the, the most um, loyal uh, to the tenets, the basic principles, you know. They just feel it's, it's, it doesn't mean anything anymore, you know. Um, I don't use the word very much at all, you know, in my, um, uh, I dropped out of the certification, um, because I didn't feel good about it. I do think there's a place for certification if you are, certainly if you're shipping foods, um, long distances, um, where you need a paper trail, there's probably good reason to have that. But for those of us who sell directly to the people who eat our food, the best certification is the relationship that we have, you know. Um, and I know that sounds very naive, but I think that creating a system based on honor and trust and um, the ability for local individuals to have a relationship with the person growing the food, that's powerful, you know. And nothing will be as strong as that ever, you know. And so uh, there are there is a very significant percentage of people in the movement now who don't no longer even use the word. <laughs> so is it economically viable for, um, let's say, a young person getting out of college who wants to uh, support themselves, support a family for them to become uh, a farmer, organic or not? Uh, the simple answer is yes, um, with a lot of caveats. Um, you know, it's uh, for for whatever reason um, we've seen this crazy assumption that if you get the right tools and wear the right clothes and you know find a little piece of land that you're uh, instantaneously uh, qualified as a farmer. Now, no other profession works like that. You know, if you're going to be a carpenter, you may, you you might spend five, six, seven, eight years as a journeyman. You know, studying. Um, if you're a sushi chef in training in Japan, you know, you might spend the first two years just sweeping the floor and then maybe be able to sharpen the knives. You'd never even touch the fish, you know. Uh, the point is that there is a history and a tradition of, uh, of apprenticeships and of, um, uh, you know, of, of learning from people who have done this for a while that seems to sometimes get lost in the, in the farming world because it seems so sexy and interesting and and so I think that someone can do very well, but they need to take the time and invest the years it takes to develop the skills and develop the experience. And if possible, do that on someone else's farm where you can make mistakes at their place. You know? I think that if someone is getting started, they um, do not need to own the land because I think if you're servicing a mortgage as a new farmer, that's pretty tough. But there are many other ways. There's a lot of land out there and people who want that land used. There are long-term leases and ways to get into land without having to make that investment initially on your own. 
Um, I think that it takes a minimum of five years on uh, developing a farm before it begins to stabilize and really find its groove. But I do see, I see a lot of people who are very successful, uh, who are able to put their kids through college, who are able to pay mortgages, who are able to make a living that's on parity with uh, other professions. And I think this, it, this also brings up a bigger question, which is, you know, what is the responsibility of eaters towards the food system as a whole? Is it really right that, you know, that we pay less per dollar for food than any nations in the world, that it's, it's a, such a tiny percent of our broader dollar? Are we willing as eaters, and I don't, I don't like the word consumers, so I say eaters, to, um, to say, look, this is, a, this is as important in my life as my doctor or my lawyer uh, or any other professional, and I'm willing to invest in how I nourish my family so that the person growing that food is well supported, you know, and that the land is well supported. Th- this, is a, this is a responsibility for the society as a whole, you know, to take on. And we, we, we have not gotten there yet. There's a lot of lip service, lots of chatter and talk, but it's not there. Uh-huh. What about in your country, Canada? About the same. Yeah. Same deal, you know. Actually, the U.S. and Canada are probably on par in terms of, you know, uh, you know how much we pay per dollar for food. It's pretty darn low, you know. Um, and, you know, the interesting th- thing here in this country is that we get cheap food at the checkout counter, but there's just innumerable hidden costs, you know. Not the least of which is, you know, still to this day, staggering amounts of money that goes uh, towards... Um, uh, supporting farm subsidies, which su- which subsidize the largest uh, industrial uh-huh. farm systems that we really really need to get away from. I mean, it was for a while forty six million dollars a day. I still don't understand that. What is it? Be- I don't because think they, I have, do either. <laughs> they have good lobbyists. Or what, what is, oh yeah, what's going on? Yeah. Well, what, one thing that was really fascinating to me is years ago. It was. It's been quite a while ago. A journalist did an investigative journalist started looking at where the checks, the subsidy checks were actually being mailed and they were going to places like Pacific Palisades and Beverly Hills and, you know. So so the money was going into the pockets of very wealthy landowners who supposedly had, you know, quote, farms, you know. And uh, so, you know, it's, um, this is a system that has been propped up by, absolutely by lobbyists, by state senators, Congress people who have um, gone to bat for the wealthiest members of their communities because those are the ones that are paying to get them in office. I mean, this is a this is the way it's working. You know. But 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 back to the question of in terms of is it a viable profession? Do you think it's more you're more likely to succeed if you're going out on your own if you are a diversified? Uh, organic farmer or if you are a specialized one if you're if you're creating a, a one product well I, I my philosophy has been to say both because I have I always encourage people to have what I call a body of signature products that they are that they have really uh, mastered if you will so maybe you have six or eight things that you grow that you're really good at you know and you know you can do those consistently you know the community is going to be able to depend on you uh, week after week, year after year to grow the best of whatever those items are. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, in order to fill out the broader farmscape, 
to create a system that is uh, uh, has proper crop rotations, that to create a system that um, is more uh, self-sustaining, self-fertile from an ecological perspective, uh, and also to balance uh, economically the potential from year to year of uh, of you know problems with crops, weather changes, um, uh, market drops in a particular crop. It's it's good to always be developing developing a whole palette of things. So if you're direct marketing, as I do a lot of at farmers markets, if you have like CSA programs, you have a retail store of some sort, uh, you need to be growing the full range of products so that when you show up at the market, people can get everything they need, you know. Within that, I still specialize. You know, I, you know, people know me for, you know, in the spring, our asparagus are really hugely popular. And then our strawberries, we grow French melons. We grow incredible blueberries, you know. Um, you know, we do crazy things like baby ginger and things that, you know, shouldn't be growing where we live, you know. So I think, you know, you want to develop a particular niche, but you also want to uh, have it balanced with a range of products, you know. Would you say, is there a sweet spot for um, number of employees? Like I used to work for, um, when I first came out to California, I worked for Molino Creek Farm up in Davenport above you know those guys. Cruz. They uh, had, I think, eight shareholders in their farm and they employed about like 10 of us who are the, the pickers. Um, and it seemed to be a model that worked for them for a number of years and that keeping it kind of small, but, but not four people, you know? Yeah, they... Um those guys have had a great history. If I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about the same place. I mean, Steve Gleesman was involved with that at one point years going way back, you know, and a number of player, big movers and shakers in the movement. It was, it was dry farm tomatoes. Was dry farm girly girls was what they were growing. Yeah. Which are incredible, you know, and talk about a niche. I mean, that's, you know, there's nothing better than a early girl tomato grown without water. You know, it's just the best, you know? Um, and, uh, Mark Lipson was there for a while and, uh, you know, some great people who have had a really profound influence on the, on the movement as a whole. So, yeah, that's a great example because that's, you know, there's one farm that has worked within the particularities of the land and the climate they're working with, within the particularities of the community they're serving, the likes and dislikes of the people that are working there. They, they, they really personalized it, you know? They localized it, you know, they, um, uh, and, you know, you could go, you know, 10 miles down the road, north or south, and find a completely different experience, you know. Uh, it's also per personality-based, you know. Uh, I've looked at a lot of farms, and they're remarkable. They really mirror the people who are stewarding them, that are managing them, you know. Yeah. Uh, the crops that are being grown, how they're being grown, you know, how the place looks, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's fascinating, you know. It's, Tell me about uh, Soul Food Farms. How many people do you employ and, and who do you employ there? Yeah, so um, I started Soul Food Street Farms um, about 11 years ago with a younger counterpart, um, Sean Dory. We started on a little half acre parking lot next to a dive hotel um, in the down, on the downtown east side of Vancouver. Uh, which I think I described earlier in our conversation. Um, maybe not. I can't remember. Um, uh, and um, the intent, the goal, the primary goal was to provide a, a one uh, meaningful engagement 
uh, to individuals who uh, had no reason to even want to get out of bed each day, you know. I'm talking about uh, uh, folks that if you drove through or walked through this neighborhood where we work and you saw them on the side of the street with a needle in their arm in broad daylight, which you see regularly, or pirouetting in the middle of the road high on crack, you'd write them off as, you know, a total loss. These are the folks that we brought in, uh, and we created a training in meaningful employment opportunity that has, in some cases, had profound effects on, on their lives, you know. We started with 11 people on a half acre. We now are uh, working with roughly 30 people uh, on about four and a half acres. As I said earlier, we produce 25 tons of food, which is remarkable on pavement, using a very innovative box system um, that is designed to both isolate the growing medium from either pavement or contaminated soil, which most cities have, and to allow us to move on short notice, which is uh, uh, a reality, uh, especially on the coast, because most urban land is too expensive for uh, landowners to uh, allow it to be tied up in farming. So we have the ability to move on short notice. Have you had to move your boxes? We have. We had to move our main headquarters site uh, a year ago. Uh, it was quite successful. Um, we did it. Uh, we, we had to use like semi trucks and forklifts and we moved uh, entire crops <laughs> growing in the boxes, loaded them on the trucks, moved them to the new site, unloaded them, reset them up, you know. Uh, so how, how large are these boxes, Michael? They're roughly 40 by 40. They're the size of a pallet, essentially the, the footprint of a pallet, you know, shipping pallet. And so, um, uh, this project has been going on for, um, like I said, about 11 years. Um, we have individuals who have been with us since the beginning, which is unbelievable. Our goal is we're not there to save anyone. We're not there to get people off of drugs, interestingly enough. We're there to um, provide a uh, sense of community, a place to go, uh, meaningful employment, a sense of uh, responsibility. Very simple things that have had very profound effects on people's lives, you know. Uh, just give you a few examples. I mean, Lyle, you know, Lyle says, you know, if I didn't have this job, where would I be? Dead? In an alley shooting up or in a penitentiary? Those were his three options. Now, this is a guy who's not prone towards dramatic or romantic reflections on a life that's included, you know, robbing banks, providing collection services for drug dealers, and surviving the jump off the top of an 18-story building. You know, this is a... So he when he tells you something, he's probably telling you something, you know. And so he's he's um, an example of someone who, as long as I've known him, he's uh, been on um, uh, morphine for his physical pain and heroin for his emotional pain. He's, he's probably will be addicted his whole life, even though he would do anything not to be. Uh, but he's incredibly functional. He can come and do an excellent day's work, um, and it makes all the difference in how he feels about himself, you know, and what he's doing, you know. You know, we have, like I say, there's 30 people who have stories like that. Uh, I have seen things that I never would have imagined. I've seen people I didn't think could get through a single day of work, you know, who are now supervisors, you know. Um, 
and uh, teaching other people, you know, how to do stuff, um, uh, who come with me to give talks and, you know, and are amazing uh, storytellers and, you know, confident uh, in, you know, who they've become as farmers, you know, and that's, that's pretty amazing. You know. Is your farm subsidized in any way? Yeah. So we generate uh, roughly about $300,000 a year in gross revenue from products grown and sold, which is pretty decent from a few acres of pavement, you know. Uh, but I have to raise three or $400,000 a year in order to support the social side of what we do. So that's things like, you know, we, you know, rain gear, breakfast program, um, uh, teaching people how to drive, financial literacy, uh, taking people to the hospital or picking them up from jail. I mean, these are things most farms are not doing. <laughs> and, you know, the staff that we have are, are probably never going to work at the same level as another farm. So so we do have to raise some money to to subsidize the effort, you know. And so, you know, that's something that I, early on, I wanted to see the thing operate like any other farm, paying its bills by the pound, you know. But uh, I soon realized after a year or two that that was never going to happen, you know. So. And how do you raise the money? So we have uh, um, Soul Food Street Farms is wholly owned by a registered charity, which I formed as well, called Cultivate Canada, which has even a broader mission than just the, um, the farm itself. And so we are able, through that charity, to raise funds. In Canada, you can operate as a charity under three uh, missions. One is um, religion, which we are not, uh, education, or alleviation of poverty. So we kind of fit into the last two categories. And so we, you know, we've uh, we've been raising money over the years to keep it going. We try to in- every year increase uh, the earned revenue part. I still have hopes that maybe someday that will be the dominant source of income. Yeah, I admire how you've been able to to weave in sort of a ideals into the the act of farming, and, it, and it's really cool. My wife Candace just went to this um, conference that was up I was up in Santa Cruz about a week ago. Do you know what it was called? Eco farm. Yeah, eco yeah. eco farms. Yeah. And she was just like, all these people there were just were just so cool. They, there was there was something to them. It was like they were wearing their ideals as part of um, part of their garb, for part of who they are. That's a that's a beautiful observation. Yeah, yeah. Eco farm is a real kind of core piece of you know. I was t- telling you earlier. You know, it was uh, I remember being at their fir- the first conference. It's now built into a huge network. You know, it's very popular and. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, for me and I think for many of my colleagues who've been at this for a while, there is this sense uh, that we need to use our skills to um, and insert them in those areas of our society that have been more under that have been underserved, you know. Um, that, you know, the, one of the challenges that many of us has faced, and I had to recognize this, I had a real reckoning that I, years ago, where I realized that, you know, I'd been farming all these years, but that uh, the majority of the food I was growing, the majority of the organic food I was growing was going to a very narrow segment of the society, and that's simply those who could afford it, you know. And so I felt like, you know, I really need to find a creative way to, to use my skills to uh, not give away food, but to teach people how to grow it, to um, to kind of pass on some of the principles and philosophies that are associated with it, to share with folks that are not attending Eco Farm or uh, going to Whole Foods, or 
any of those places, um, but have equal needs like the rest of us. I mean, look, uh, you know, clean air, uh, pure water, good food, that's not just something for uh, rich white folk, you know. That is the birthright for everyone, you know. And um, and we got to figure out ways to spread that out because those, those are really fundamental pieces of um, creating a healthy society. That is not something that just belongs to an exclusive narrow segment, you know. Well, let me ask you a little bit about the uh, another side of your life, which is the writing side. You're the author of at least four books that I know about, uh, From the Good Earth, On Good Land, which is the autobiography of an urban farmer, Fields of Plenty, A Farmer's Journey, uh, In Search of Real Food and the People Who Grow It, and of course, Street Farm, which is about your soul foods project. I couldn't think of anything that's that's more different than 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 farming. I'd say than than sitting behind a a computer and 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 typing. So how does how does that fit into uh, your life? Well, you know, it's interesting because I uh, you I would have made that same assumption, except that I've discovered that b- by nature of the slow, patient art of farming, which you know, the, the most important agricultural skill is not all these things we think, it's observation, you know, which actually happens to be the most important skill for a writer or for a visual artist. <laughs> so, you know, I'm writing every day I'm in my fields in the, you know, the notebook of my brain. You know, there's the stories. Every day there's a new story or some revelation or something, some observation that's just unbelievable. It's such a fascinating thing. It's a biological system which means every minute it's changing. Um, And so I get to witness this incredible performance on a day-to-day basis that goes on on my farm, you know. And so the part of sitting down and actually putting the words to the screen is kind of the final act, you know. It's like, it's all, I've been, the stories have been going, you know. I have endless stories, you know. I am the last person, and I say this with great sincerity, that I ever would have imagined uh, writing books because I'm, I'm very kinetic and very physical, and I just don't sit still. I was the worst student in school. you know. I am the last person I ever would have imagined going out and giving speeches, which I do a lot of. you know. And yet, when you live a life that's rich, maybe not affluent, but rich, <laughs> it's a difference, um, biologically and socially in terms of the work I've done, you just want to talk about it and you want to write about it. You want to share it with people, you know? And so I found a lot of farmers are, turns out are, you know, good writers. They're great artists, you know, they're musicians, you know, they're, they're, they want to interpret this in another form and we need the balance. Like I love my winters off now. (laughs) When I farmed in California, never did I have a winter off. But here uh, now, uh, farming in BC, we take three or four months, and I—that's when I, you know, do the other work, and I love it. You know, yeah. So, what's your favorite book that you've written? I think it's Fields of Plenty. I think, um, uh, you know, it was um, that was amazing. Uh, both Fields of Plenty and Street Farm. I mean, Fields of Plenty was uh, based on a road trip I did with my eldest son, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Uh, visiting, you know, these folks who had mastered the production of various signature products, you know, cheesemakers and fruit growers and grain growers and 
and uh, and then also writing about what we were seeing along the way, and you know, going into fast food restaurants and up in spray helicopters, and so it was this kind of amazing collage of you know travel, um, and um, included visiting my father and having him take us to the places that the home, the places where he grew up, the farms he grew up on that were no longer, you know. So that that was a a lot of fun to write, and it really was amazing. It's kind of memoir style, you know. Yeah. And then Street Farm, I think I, I'm pretty happy with. Uh, it was a very hard book to write, mm-hmm. extremely difficult, mm-hmm. because of the great sense of responsibility I felt to the people whose intimate, and I mean very intimate stories, were shared with me. You know, and while I was careful, I offered to change names. Nobody wanted their names changed, and you know, it still was a sensitive and very kind of difficult thing to put together in a way that was respectful and not patronizing or demeaning or, you know. And yet I, I feel good about that book. I feel that it's a, it's, it does not have a Hollywood ending. There's some hard stuff in there. But it treats my coworkers with great respect, I believe, you know, and it honors the work that they've done. And the incredible courage and perseverance that they've shown me to get up and come to work and do and care about what they're doing. These are folks that, you know, people wouldn't look at like that. But the, some of them are my heroes now, you know. Yeah, so. And are you working on a, a book at, at this moment? As we speak. <laughs> You're just addicted to... <laughs> it's something ro- there's something wrong with it, but there's something very cathartic, too. I mean, I... You know, I would have to say that probably everybody you've interviewed or talked to, um, anybody doing whatever kind of therapeutic work, or um, would they they would have to admit if they were being honest that uh, you know they're working on themselves when they're doing that as much as uh, with anybody else. You know, and when I write, I just feel like it's my way of um, it's it, it's very therapeutic. You know, and it's, I have an absolute imperative, I don't know how else to describe it, to tell stories. <laughs> Is it hard? Oh, my God. It's like sitting down sometimes and doing that. You know, you've done it. It's brain-wrenching, you know. Uh, but the satisfaction? Love it, you know. Once I'm kind of a quarter of the way in and can see where it's going and it's got some momentum, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm a bit of a futurist uh, junkie. I'm so curious about the next couple hundred years of our of our lives on this planet. What would you guess would be the future of agriculture? Let's say um, um, push it out 100 years from now. What I really believe right now, and this does to some degree answer your question, you know, uh, and then I'll move beyond this, is that uh, the greatest role... Uh, in society that farmers need to play going forward, starting now and going forward, is not necessarily the production of food, but the sequestering of carbon and water. You see, we have, farmers have control of a lot of land, (laughs) Uh, either under their management, maybe under their ownership, under their control. We now know that uh, there are uh, very specific techniques um, and methods to intentionally accelerate 
the holding, the sequestering of, of carbon. And I add water to that as well, because I think that's important uh, as well. And I think that we really need to take that responsibility seriously. Um, uh, and it's not complicated. Um, you know, on my farm, which is 120 acres, I have more than half uh, is in pasture at any one time. And um, that appears to the uninformed eye to be a um, kind of a passive, non-productive use. But it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> There's a lot going on in that pasture, you know, that's really important to society to achieve the kinds of goals I just mentioned. But it's also important to uh, improving and stabilizing the fertility of that soil. So, you know, if it does get farmed in the future and I rotate that section of land that I am intensively farming, that I've got something to work with. So I think that's really important. And we need to develop those skills. We need to improve them. There's been great studies done, great work done now that that is a really uh, valuable thing that can be done. And it's the impact is, is huge, really major. I mean, going forward, I think that my greatest concern uh, in where I think a lot of us who are agrarian elders um, are putting our energy is that we need to repopulate our society with many, many more people doing this work. You know, it is not any longer enough to be writing about it or making movies about it or talking about it or feeling good because you go to the farmer's market. We need lots more young people to get into this profession. And we need to be able to demonstrate that they can make a decent living doing it so that they'll do that. Um, and we need to help them find new and creative ways to access land, to develop the, the skills, to access capital like any business so they, they can get started in a strong way. Because if we continue the way we are, where 2% of the population is growing the fundamental nourishment for the rest, we will continue to see the vast degradation of the land base, the quality of food continue to, to continue to uh, diminish, uh, the health of the society to go down. We need to get more people involved with this. And we need to put that sense of honor and craft and, and respect back into a profession that, frankly, for a long time got a bad rap. You know, it was considered to be some sort of lowly thing. That you know, We really need that. We, we need for young people to see this is a really high art form and craft, you know. And it is. It's the, it's, it is. And to know they can make a def decent living doing it as well at the same time. So, yeah. Do you have any self-care tips because you're you're out there farming? I mean, I'm I'm just curious how you've kept yourself in such great shape. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm um, I'm 64. Um, you know, I, I you know I got to be honest. Genetics are genetics is a, is a big piece. We, we know that, but it's not the whole thing, you know. And I have been fairly conscientious, not always. Uh, about taking care of myself. So, you know, uh, pretty simple, basic stuff. You know, I, I do try to s stretch regularly. You know, I, you know, 
you can call it yoga if you want. I guess this is this audience can handle that one. <laughs> I have had a yoga practice. I'm, you know, I'm coming out, you know, <laughs> for uh, since I was uh, 18 or 19, I think, you know. You know, I obviously I eat well. I have the privilege of eating well because uh, for years and years when I was farming in California, people come into my house and they'd open up the refrigerator. There'd be nothing, maybe a can of mayonnaise or something. And there was always this shock, you know, well, the food was all out in the fields, you know. We ate every day fresh from the fields, you know, before every meal we harvested, you know. So I've been, that's a privilege, and I recognize that. And I have taken good, good advantage of that privilege, you know. Uh, I am not a fanatic of, of any particular diet, although I believe fundamentally in, in the, basically a plant-based diet, but I, I'm an omnivore. Um, I eat everything. I like to know that the source of the everything is reasonably good if I'm traveling, for example. Um, but I'm not nuts about it. I no longer have created a mental state that forces me to agonize <laughs> over every spoonful because I think that's way more unhealthy than just eating whatever is put before you, you know. So I don't get, uh, I don't go into the head trip too much, you know. Um uh, I, and I, as physical as farming is, and my place is not all flat. So, you know, the first year I was on my, on our farm in BC, I wore a pedometer. I was doing eight miles a day, you know, on uneven ground. But even with that, I think that, um, I needed a additional, um, physical outlet. So I swim, I love swimming. I think that, and I try to sleep. <laughs> Sleep's a good thing, you know. <laughs> Sleeping is really good. Um, and I take chunks of time. My winters are just uh, very special, you know, because I, you know, if I'm writing, I'm also, you know, taking time to hike and, you know, whatever else. So, I mean, it's pretty damn simple, you know. My gosh. I mean, I say to people, you know, I, I still consider that Big Sur and Esalen to some degree as my kind of spiritual home. You know, I really feel that way. I, I have written um, all or part of all four of my books, and now I'm working on the fifth one here in Big Sur. For some reason, I can't write at home. <laughs> I live in this really quiet, remote place, and I can't write there because yeah. my work is my physical work's out there looking at me all the time. Right. Well, Michael, I, I, you know, I want to end this by by asking you to repeat that that quote about boldness, which I found so profound, and and kind of how that pertains to to your life as you live it today. This has been <laughs> there are little torn off scraps of paper to this day all over my house, and and they have been on the walls of every place I've lived since I was about eighteen years old. And it is the a quote attributed to Goethe, although there is some question as to whether he actually <laughs> wrote it, but I, you know, at least parts of it, which is whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And this is about, you know, the importance of taking the first step, you know. Jumping off the edge without knowing, you know, uh, uh, experiencing the unsupported moment, you know, um, being willing to take risks, um, having a dream and 
with no possible idea as to how you're going to achieve it, no resources to achieve it, no support system to achieve it, but, but on some level being willing to take the first step. And when you do that, all doors begin to open. And I, have, I am one that can tell you from personal experience that this is absolutely the case. All kinds of possibilities and support systems make themselves avail themselves to you when you do that. And things doors open and things happen. And um, nothing that I have done in my life, I have no college education, I have no experience fundraising, I was never trained to be a writer or a speaker or anything, <laughs> or a farmer. Um, so I, I really am not qualified for anything that I do except for that little torn off sheet of paper that graces my wall, you know, and that's, and I follow that. Michael Abelman, thank you so much for joining us on Voices of Esalen today. It's been awesome hanging out with you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldyn Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. Thank you so much for your contributions to our world.